So Palm Sunday, we're going to focus on the prophecy about the Messiah riding into Jerusalem on the donkey. Uh, and some of the, there's some more prophetic uh, importance to that prophecy than what we see at face value, more than just Jesus riding in on a donkey. So we're going to kind of explore some of that. And then Easter Sunday, we're going to, of course, do Isaiah 53. Um, I couldn't resist the, it was just right there, and I, all right, I'm going to do it. Uh, but today, we're going to talk about death. He shall swallow up death, Isaiah 25, verse 8. So death is a reality for everyone. Ever since the original sin in the Garden of Eden, death has been a sure fate for humanity. Paul says in Romans that the wages of sin is death. That's the payment for our sin. And while we have been forgiven of our sin, and we no longer experience the spiritual death, the payment for sin is death, and physical death still awaits us because we still live in a broken world. Before we can inherit eternal life, there is this physical death that takes place, whether we die young, in the middle of our lives, or in old age. And it's something that we are kind of uncomfortable with uh, in society, uh, but it's a reality for everybody. And the, the truth is that this is a reality because creation has not yet been completely restored. The war is won, but the battle rages on. We know that God is won. We know that death is defeated from this prophecy but we still live in this broken world filled with sin and filled with pain, and death is part of that brokenness. So we know that while God has won, there is still some redemption to come down the road as a result of that win that's already taken place. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. We're, we're going to look at this prophecy that not only looks forward to Jesus and what his sacrifice would accomplish, it's also a prophecy that's only partially fulfilled, um, only partially completed, with the promise of more to still come. And so because of that, there's all these eschatological implications, which is just end times. So all through Revelation, there's references to this. So there's a unique factor to this prophecy this week, because so far, all the prophecies we've looked at have been fulfilled. But this week, we get to experience some of that excitement of blessing and freedom that's still to come that they experience looking forward to Jesus. And, and while we don't yet have the entire completion of this uh, and this fulfillment, the action that makes it possible has already been taken through Jesus' resurrection. Today we will see that every Christian can find hope and peace for the coming age because death has been defeated by Jesus. So if you have your Bible with you today, our prophecy is Isaiah 25. And I'm going to read verses 1 to 8 for, to give you some of the context. Um, but we're really going to be in verses 7 and 8, mostly, uh, for studying. So I'll start at verse 1. Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name. For in perfect faithfulness you have done wonderful things, things planned long ago. You have made the city a heap of rubble the fortified town a ruin. The foreigners stronghold a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong people will honor you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. You have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in their distress, a shelter from the storm, and a shade from the heat. 
For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm driving against a wall, and like the heat of the desert. You silence the uproar of foreigners as heat is reduced by the shadow of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is still. And this is where our focus is going to be today, this next bit. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will, repair, will prepare a feast of rich food for all people, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. So let's start with some of the context around here to kind of give us a better picture because there's a lot of prophetic language through Isaiah because he's a prophet. So uh, it's important to understand what's going on, not just in this book, but in history around the time that this was written. So this was written uh, as part of a prophetic song by the prophet Isaiah between 740 and 680 BC. So Isaiah was called by God to prophesy to the Israelites who lived in the kingdom of Judah. Because at this point in Israel's history, if you've, if you've studied um, ancient history, Israel was actually split into two kingdoms. So there was the northern kingdom of Israel in the north, and then there was the kingdom of Judah in the south. And Isaiah's prophecies were specifically focused around this imminent judgment that was to come due to the sin of the people in both nations. But it was also focused on the eventual restoration of the people of Judah and Jerusalem. And we know from history that this is the people who God did save and bring back from exile. Something that's not well known is that God did not actually bring all of the Israelites back from exile. Uh, in fact, most of them did not return. So, in God's eyes, the northern kingdom was considered so corrupt and so sinful that when they were assimilated by the Assyrians and taken into captivity, they never came back. And so if you've ever heard of the lost tribes of Israel, that's where that comes from. They were taken into captivity. Those tribes never came back. No one knows what happened to them after three or four hundred years. They just kind of disappeared in history. Um, there's all these theories about these tribes hiding somewhere. I feel like, in my opinion, since they were that sinful, they probably just became part of whatever culture they were in and were just happy to be there and didn't really care at that point. So, if you've ever wondered why today we use the phrase Jew or Jewish instead of Israelite, that's why. The remaining known descendants of Israel are all exiles who were taken from the southern kingdom of Judah. And that's where the name Jew comes from, is from Judah. All Jews are Israelites, but not all Israelites are Jews, if that makes sense. Uh, and so that's where that phrase comes from. That's why we don't just say Israelites now. It would technically still be accurate to say that, um, but that's why there's this differential term after they come back. Now, why is that important for this prophecy? Uh, it's not at all, but it's interesting. So, there you go. I get sidetracked by this stuff all the time when I'm studying. So, in the book of Isaiah, we have this long string of prophecies detailing God's pending judgment and punishment of the Israelites, but it also talks about his redemptive plans for, uh, Israel, for Judah and Jerusalem, but also this kind of bigger eschatological picture as well. Uh, and this is kind of what we're seeing here. So, in the chapter right before the, this chapter 25 prophecy that we're looking at, we see a detailed account of the destruction of the world. 
um, which we know that hasn't happened yet. So um, we see this this destructive um, kind of like purging the world uh, chapter, and then in this chapter, chapter twenty five, we see this description of a feast, uh, and we see this praise of God for what He has done and what He will do, and that's where we find ourselves this morning is this song of praise. So during Isaiah's ministry, the Assyrians um, were on a conquering spree. And what's cool about biblical history is you actually, if you look through, like, well-known history outside of Christianity, it matches up. Um, we can see what's going on here. We can see um, historical records outside of Christianity that back up all these movements of nations against each other. So we know the Assyrian nation was on a conquering spree at this point. Uh, and at one point, they actually demand the king of Judah, Hezekiah, to surrender. But Isaiah tells them that Judah will not be defeated yet. Um, they were eventually, uh, but for now they're all right. Uh, but the Assyrians did succeed in capturing the northern nation of Israel. They were defeated. And then a little while later, I say a little while for us, but for them hundreds of years, um, the Babylonians come along. They conquer the Assyrians, and then eventually they conquer the nation of Judah as well and take those people into captivity. And that didn't happen until a little while after this was written. Um, so... The point of telling you all this is that to put yourself in the eyes of Isaiah's audience, his proclamation of judgment was not some far-off thing. They were watching this happen to their neighbors. It wasn't like times were good during Isaiah's ministry. War was looming, but they were burying their heads in the sand um, regarding their rejection of God, and that's why Isaiah was coming along to warn them. So when we first read this passage, a few things stand out very clearly to me. Uh, and again, focusing mostly on verse 7 and 8 of chapter 25. So the first thing we see is this mountain. Uh, this mountain is the setting for these events that were to come and to happen. Uh, there's this, on this mountain, repeated over and over. Uh, there's this talk about this covering or veil, which is to be removed from all the people. And then we see this prophecy that God will swallow up death. We see that God will remove the reproach of his people and wipe away every tear. And structurally in this passage is kind of tied to that removing of death. And then we see that all of this will happen because God has spoken it. The Lord has spoken. And something else um, just important for you guys to know. Um, when you're reading your Bible in the Old Testament, whenever they use all uppercase letters for the word Lord, that is the Hebrew word Yahweh in the original text. Uh, and so that was a, a word that they were almost scared to use at that point in time because, um, because they believed that if you took the Lord's name in vain, bad things happened because God told them that. But they were scared to say it at all. Uh, and so they would replace it, um, and we replace it too in our scriptures with this um, uppercase Lord. So if you're ever wondering why sometimes it's not uppercase and sometimes it's completely uppercase, uh, when it's completely uppercase, it's the actual name of God. Uh, and so there's always intensity there. He's saying this by his own name. Alright, so let's look at the actual passage. Starting in verse 7. And like I say, both those two verses is all we're really going to look at for this prophecy. And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering, which is over all people, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. So first of all, where's this mountain that he's talking about? And in Isaiah 2, we see this identified as the mountain we spoke of last week. The mountain that the temple was on in Jerusalem, Moriah. 
So it says in uh, Isaiah 2, Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the Lord, house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. And it will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. So that's the mountain he's talking about. The, the mountain that the house of the Lord is on in Jerusalem. So on that mountain, he will swallow up this covering or veil, and he will swallow up death and wipe away every tear. Focusing in on this veil or covering, which is over all the people and all the nations, uh, the veil or covering is an image used throughout Scripture. Um, usually it was used to conceal something, um, to conceal maybe the face of someone in mourning uh, or something shameful. Sometimes it was used to cover something sacred. Uh, and then it's also used often in Scripture to refer to ignorance and hardened hearts. And that's kind of the sense of the word in this passage. Um, I guess our modern equivalent would be burying your head in the sand. So this is kind of the sense we have here. It, it refers to the ignorance of a current and a future state uh, and the way to eternal life. It says here that on the mountain of the Lord, this veil will be removed. And that's meant to be an expression, again, of the ignorance, the superstition, the crime, and wretchedness that covers the earth, and the ignorance towards our own sinful state. We see reference to this veil in the New Testament by Paul. In 2 Corinthians 3, 12-16, it says, Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our preaching and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. And here's where it gets interesting. But their minds were hardened, for until this very day at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So we get this picture of hardened hearts and ignorance and a veil that covers your understanding. But when a person turns to the Lord, this veil of ignorance is taken away and they understand and know the error of the ways. And I think this is kind of why when you have someone who's not a Christian, they say, well, what's the big deal about all these rules? Like, I'm not a bad person. They don't get it. But then you have Paul planting and leading the church, and how does he refer to himself? As the worst of sinners. That doesn't mean that he's worse than these other people. It means the veil of ignorance is lifted away, and he sees his sin for what it is. There's no more hiding from it. There's no more burying his head in the sand. The veil of ignorance is taken away, and you can see the state of the world and your own sinful state for what it is. And then we come to verse 8. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from every face, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And depending on your translation, you'll see that word swallow up when he's talking about the veil as well. Uh, so this imagery around swallowing up something is also rooted through not just scripture, but a lot of historical literature uh, in that time and in those cultures. And it was meant to destroy entirely, to remove, take away, swallowed up and eaten, for lack of a better word. Um, it was funny, Larissa was kind of making fun of me. I said it with this swallow up and she's like, um, um, um. And I was like, but that's kind of the picture, you know? Like, if you see something eating something else, like, it's gone, it's destroyed. Now, if you're ever watching like those animal shows on TV where something, something, something else, like, it's destroyed. And it's used, this phrase, in other cultures as well. And you get the sense that Isaiah is kind of contrasting some of these other ancient cultures. And there's almost a sense of irony 
in saying that God will swallow up death here, because death is often pictured as the swallower of life in other cultural ancient literature. So he's contrasting that and saying that, um, that God is going to swallow death. And this passage is often or is quoted by Paul in his argument regarding the resurrection of the dead in 1 Corinthians 15.54, when he says that death is swallowed up in victory. Now this abolition of death was proved as possible through Jesus' ministry and the raising of the dead. It was declared and won through his own resurrection. And this is the center of this whole prophecy that everything else is contingent on, this destruction or swallowing up of death. And, and it's a picture that's often thrown through, shown through the New Testament as having been completed already through Jesus. We see that through Jesus, death has been defeated. 2 Timothy 2.10 says, But now it has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. Then in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 55, we see Paul quoting the prophet Hosea, saying, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of sin is death, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we also see the eschatological implications of this eating of death all through the book of Revelation. Uh, the prophecy in Isaiah will only be fully completed and fully realized when death is thrown into the lake of fire at the final judgment. And that's from Revelation 20, verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And then we also see this quoted by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, when he says, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. So back to Isaiah 25, to our passage here. In the second half of verse 8, we see the results of this swallowing of death on the mountain of the Lord. That he will wipe away every tear from every face, and he will remove the reproach or the disgrace of his people. And we see this in Revelation as well. Usually it's connected right after that death part or to that death part. So in Revelation 7, 17, it says, for the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Then Revelation 21, verse 3 to 5, And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death, there will be no longer any mourning, or crying, or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So, throughout Scripture we see this prophecy has been fulfilled in Jesus. The death blow is dealt. But at the same time, the results of that fulfillment are not yet complete. We know that it will come to pass, and we wait in eager anticipation. All right, so we've looked at this passage, so let's kind of start to apply this. What should you take away from this prophecy? So the first thing I want you to remember is that the sting of death has been destroyed immediately through the gift of eternal life. 
Death is the result of sin, so by defeating the power of sin, Jesus defeats death itself. The reason Isaiah wrote this, this prophecy, not Isaiah 25, but the whole thing, was to look ahead to God's redemptive plan for humankind and to praise him for it, but also to warn the Israelites. But our sin and the resultant curse in Genesis that's what made this plan necessary because we now suffer and die and because we weep and mourn god has had to make this plan back when we studied the great commission we spent a whole week talking about the authority of jesus and during his life ministry he demonstrated that he has absolute authority over death by raising people from the dead and then God demonstrated his power over death by raising Jesus from the dead. Peter says of Jesus in Acts 2, But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. It was impossible for death to keep Jesus. Not hard, impossible. And so through that, the power of death has been defeated. Now we know that physical death is still a reality that we all must experience. Why? Because we still live in a sinful, broken world. The redemption of the world is not yet complete, and this will only be completed at the final judgment. But the immediate gift is that we have eternal life. While death is still an absolute, spiritual death is not. In Romans 6, it says, Therefore we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. No longer present yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been bought from death to life, and present yourself to God as an instrument of righteousness. So God has bought us and paid for us with his death, with the death of his son, Jesus. And now we are dead to sin. Death is a result of sin. And while physical death is still a reality, just like sin is still a reality in the world around us, the war has been won and the death blow has been dealt. Jesus has defeated death. Revelation 1.18 says, I was dead and see I am alive forever and ever and I have the keys of death and Hades. That's Jesus talking. Because of this, those who are in Jesus are already saved from spiritual death. So that's the first thing I want you to take away. But the second thing I want you to take away is that physical death will one day be destroyed as well. We see the fulfillment of Isaiah 25 in Revelation. In chapter 19, there is this feast of celebration a wedding feast for Jesus and his church, like what we see in Isaiah 25, this feast of celebration. And then we see this fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah 25 in Revelation 20, verse 14. It says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And then finally in chapter 21, after that takes place, we see the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, and God once again lives with us on this new earth. And this fits because Isaiah 24 details the destruction of the old world, the old things passing away, and God making all things new. 
while we have only seen the first part of this prophecy fulfilled, we have the benefit of knowing that the war is won, death is defeated, and that the plan is set in stone. When all is said and done, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death itself. To conclude, it can be hard sometimes when you live in a sinful world and a world filled with pain and suffering, it can be hard to remember that sin and death are defeated. But this prophecy, what it does for us as we move towards this Easter season, is it serves as a reminder. It's a reminder that while the war is won, the battle rages on. It remind, but it reminds us the war is won. It reminds us that while we do live in a world changed and delivered by Jesus, and we live and walk in this new life that he's given us, that the world we walk in with that new life is still hurting and broken. We get to experience so many blessings and gifts as a result of the sacrifice Jesus made. But sometimes we also need to remember that just as the sacrificial system was a temporary means to an end for the Israelites, the world we live in now will also not last. We've seen the fulfillment of this promise, but we have not seen the entire prize, the entire result of this promise. We're running a race towards that prize, the full restoration of creanity, um, of creanity, creation and humanity. <laughs> it's a new word. <laughs> the full restoration of humanity's relationship with God. When Jesus walked on the earth, he healed the sick and raised the dead, giving people a small window into what was to come. Make no mistake, Jesus' miracles, they weren't just miracles, they were prophecy of things to come. We are forgiven and we have freedom from spiritual death, but God is still working on us to make us complete. Sin and death are defeated, but we still have to live in a world with sin and death. But one day, God's work in us will be complete. And one day there will be no Satan. One day there will be no more temptation and no more tears. And even though we are all still facing a physical death, unless we're lucky enough to be one of the ones around when Jesus comes back, we have this promise from Isaiah 25. Regardless of the sin and the pain in the world around us, death has been destroyed by Jesus. And so as we move towards Easter, yes, let's, let's focus on and praise God for what we have now through him. But let's also praise him for and anticipate what is still to come. I'll close in prayer. Father God, I thank you for primarily your son and the sacrifice that you gave and that he gave for our freedom. I ask that you would help us as we come close to Easter to focus our hearts and minds on you and how much you loved us to give your own son so that we could have a relationship with you. I also thank you not for what, just for what we have now, but for the things that are still to come and for the amazing immensity of your plan to restore us all to a relationship with you. I just ask that you guide us this week as we go out into our lives and in our relationships with those that we interact with day to day and help us to be beacons of light to those that we see. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.